1: I think one I will say is the' is the belief the belief that you can make a difference I think it starts from that you know once there's a will once there's a courage uh, then I think you understand to something uh, I think you know people had lost you know motivation and probably lost a bit of hope by the time i was I was in the place that things were probably not going to change they hadn't seen it change for a while but I think coming in and um, and, and coming in as a fresh pair of eye, but with a a bit clarity in my head, what I think could be achieved. uh, And I think the will uh, to make that difference was was what was key.
0: You are listening to The Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that story comes from former CEO and now chairman of Montserrat, Bob's Amatoa, who encourages us to keep believing in ourselves And throughout today's discussion, Amatoa shares his journey from the storeroom to boardroom, why trust comes on a bike and leaves on a Ferrari, and how to make sound decisions with immense shareholder pressure. So without further interruption, may I introduce to you episode 188 with the real Bob's Amatoa. Enjoy. Enjoy. the real leaders podcast but with that being said folks let's get this show on the road here here we go now in five four three two and one and welcome everyone to this episode of the real leaders podcast I'm your host Kevin Edwards joining us today is Bob's Amatoa uh, the chairman and on the advisory board of Monteserato Bob thanks for being with us today
1: thank you very much uh, Kevin my pleasure
0: Bob, you got an inspiring story. Let's just go to the beginning. Tell us about some of your earliest moments of working in the storeroom in for, the Shell. Room for Shell.
1: Thanks a lot, uh, Kevin. I think that was in 1993, I had uh, just joined Shell. Uh, prior to that, I was already uh, working as a teacher uh, in a secondary school, so this was uh, interesting to start working in a big multinational company like Shell. Um, I was very excited joining the company uh, because uh, it was going to be a new opportunity for me to really get to see global organizations uh, in, in real life. Uh, so, the first uh, posting was in the storeroom, and um, this was in a warehouse in, in Wari, in the western parts of Nigeria. Uh, you know, as you can imagine, in an oil and gas company, The storeroom is probably one of the lowest places you can be starting from. It's it's not in the field, it's not in production, it's not in finance or or commercial. Um, But what it gives you, I think it's a real opportunity to see the business uh, from the bottom, really looking at the whole organization. Uh, Also, because it was uh, a place where most of the production was supported from, you also got to see the real uh, action in, in the organization. But I think what struck me very early on, really, was how much disorganized uh, the warehouse was. It was quite disorganized. Um, it had been neglected over the years, as I think you know, most uh, low-level places in, in organizations sometimes are not you know, the, the, the best places to go to. Uh, but what I then saw was opportunities. I saw you know, this is an opportunity to make a difference, uh, an opportunity to really. Make this a place where people wanted to work. The staff in the place were not so happy working in the place. Nobody likes to work in a disorganized place. Uh, customers were not so happy about about the, the warehouse as well because materials were all strewn uh, all over the place, um, and you know there were a lot of accidents uh, happening. You know, people falling over, injuring themselves. Yeah. Uh, so, but for me, what I saw were great opportunities. Great opportunity to make a difference. Uh, and I started to, you know, work with uh, my staff, work with uh, the customers, uh, work with the management uh, team uh, to bring in, you know, new talents into into my organization, uh, but to also set out a vision of, of what we wanted to achieve. Uh, and within two years, we were able to turn the place around, really we really you know, created an environment that was really very inspiring for staff. Things became well arranged. I, I had this vision in my head at the beginning that we wanted to be the Walmart, uh, the Sainsbury, uh, because it's in this sort of supermarkets and, and they were really, really very, uh, you know, they were places you wanted to walk in. So, so that was what I used to discuss with my staff. And, and we created that kind of environment. And I was very pleased that within two years, the leadership of the organization, I started to bring in you know their friends or their visitors to come and look at what a difference we had made uh within such a period so really great uh, you know to working at that bottom but a great opportunity to make a difference and a great opportunity to bring some of the best practices that uh, i had read about to bring it to life in in, in the warehouse
0: it's interesting Bob. So, so you wanted to make this change you just wanted to simply make things better and I'm sure that a lot of other people in that store would want to do the same, except what do you think kind of made you a little bit different and why things were actually able to change by the actions that you made?
1: I think one I will say is the, is the belief, the belief that you can make a difference. I think it starts from that. You know, once there's a will, once there's a courage, uh, then I think you understand to something. Uh, I think, you know, people have lost you know, motivation, and probably lost a bit of hope by the time i was I was in the place that things were probably not going to change. They hadn't seen it change for a while. But I think coming in and um, and and coming in as a fresh pair of eye, but with a with a bit clarity in my head, what I think could be achieved. Uh, and I think the will uh, to make that difference was was what was key. Uh, what I find in a lot of job that I've done, you know from that warehouse, is that you need courage. Uh, you need courage to be able to make a difference. Yeah. Uh, the big difference, of course, when you work in developing countries, as against if you're working in the Western world, is that the hurdles to overcome are a lot higher in developing countries. Because you know you you will find it difficult to to you know see normal things that you see in the Western world. You you find it more challenging to make because infrastructures are not as good. You don't have as many facilities as you will have in the Western world. Uh, The capabilities in societies are not as great. Uh, But you must be determined. You must have the courage uh, to be able to overcome those challenges. Uh, And I think once you put yourself into it, uh, what I find is that it surprises, you know, the human being surprises itself what it can achieve. Mm. I think if you look at what we've achieved as a human race over the, the period in which we have been here on Earth, I think we've achieved some amazing things that I think. It it comes down to bottom line, do you have the will? Do you have the vision? And do you have the courage to overcome some of the challenges that you will face, uh, irrespective of uh, where you are starting from.
0: Interesting. So, Bob, some some people have that sense of belief in them, and sometimes it's learned along the way. Did you know you had? Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, I guess what it took in order to make that change. I mean, what. How did you acquire such a, a strong, confident belief in yourself?
1: I think, uh, Kevin, I, I will say I developed some of my core values right from childhood. Um, and I think there were three key areas that I developed those uh, core values from. The first, uh, I think, came from, uh, you know, the farm. You know, my father grew up as a, as a farmer. He trained himself through school and university working on the farm. So everywhere he he walked, he always had a farm, uh, and so I found myself, you know, every Saturday and every holiday uh, having to go to the farm to to work uh, with him and my and my siblings as well. Uh, what I learned from the farm were I think three key lessons. One was that uh, you needed to work very hard. Um, hard work was quite important on the farm because that's what makes a difference. You needed to persevere. You know, you 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 had to. Believe in the plan and, and persevere. That you know all the efforts you are putting in, you will see the output. You will see the uh, product uh, in some time to come. Uh, and the other thing I learned was that you really had to uh, also plan, you know, in advance because there are seasons for everything. You know, there's the rainy season, there's the uh, uh, the summer, and all of that. Uh, so those three things I learned really hard from from the farm: hard work, perseverance, uh, and and planning. Uh, the other place I did learn quite uh, a number of things as well, I, I would say, was in the church as well. Uh, I did learn quite a lot going to the church. Uh, I, I grew up uh, as a Christian home. And, uh, you know, the Ten Commandments, I think, were things that uh, resonated with me throughout my upbringing. Uh, and a number of those, you know, stay with me to today. You know, core values such as honesty and integrity, I think, were paramount uh, uh, when you, uh, you know, come through such upbringing. But the last thing in the area that I learned some of my, my values, I think, came from while growing up in Nigeria. I, I also had observed that a few uh, companies, big multinationals, big companies were you know, really going bankrupt. Uh, you know, We had the Nigeria Airways at that time. We had shipping line. We had iron and steel companies, big organizations that had uh, really fallen flat. Uh, and you know, as I studied these organizations, I found a few things you know were, were responsible. Part of them was, uh, of course, the uh, you know, corruption was an issue in in some of those organizations. Lack of planning, I think, was an issue. Organizations were resting on their oars; they were not really you know driving for best practices. They were not driving for to beat their competition, uh, and and you know they were not planning well in advance. So so I I you know. Put it upon myself that you know wherever i walked i was going to be the change that i wanted to see uh, i wanted to you know make this difference in, in whatever role that I, I i fulfilled and so those were things that uh, were with me before i moved into that uh, storeroom uh the the, the knowledge of uh, what hard work perseverance and uh, planning could bring the value of honesty and integrity in, in, in whatever we did but also the the need for looking for best practices, the need for being very competitive, the need for having the courage to, to really bring the best practices into life were things that uh, really drove me and uh, were, were paramount before I started in the, in the store. It's
0: fascinating. It's fascinating. And what, what also strikes me is that what is another need for business leaders, hopefully listening to this, is the need for bottom-up leadership. Listening to people on the front lines, understanding them, taking their wisdom, their knowledge, their day-to-day information and learning from it, adjusting from it. What about the leadership at that time struck you as uh, an organization that you wanted to work for? I mean, was this common that uh, a large organization like Shell is going to go down to the storeroom and, you know, train and, and put a lot of time and energy into somebody who is, is actually making some change? I mean, is that something that's normal in most organizations that you've been associated with?
1: I think my experience of working in organizations, I mean, most of my working experience was in Shell, either in Nigeria, in, in in the UK, or in, in Holland. Um, and, you know, what I would describe with my experience is that leaders in all these organizations um, are always, of course, looking for uh, you know, not just bottom-line uh, profitability, but they're also looking for best-in-class competitive performance uh, as well. Uh, and you know, they, they they look across the organizations for where talents are, and where those talents could make a difference in in in, in the various areas. Uh, in one of the examples, uh, I worked in the North Sea, uh, you know, in the early 2000. And um, in a particular example, we had quite a number of uh, what we call supply vessels. These are vessels that take materials to our offshore uh, platforms. And um, we had the number of vessels, probably about 20, that were divided into, some were going into production platforms, while some were going into the rigs uh, as dedicated uh, uh, vessels. Uh although quite young then and and quite still low level, uh, I felt at that time that it was an opportunity to combine these, you know, resources and and rather than, you know, have them dedicated by function to be dedicated by geography. So, you know, if you had rigs and and supply and um, platforms in one location, like in the, you know, in the uh, brand that you you have those supplied by some uh, combined vessels, And and, you know, did the analysis, did the modeling, and we could save about thirty percent on vessels, which came to you know some tens of millions of dollars. But of course, the you know very senior leader who was responsible for the drilling rigs felt this was a big risk because of course a a rig can at that time cost you three hundred thousand dollars a day, whereas a vessel could cost maybe thirty thousand dollars a day. So his view was that you know you could save a couple of 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 uh, uh, vessels, but one day of loss on the rig wipes off those those savings. Uh, but you know, in the conversation that I had with him, and, and you know, this is the maturity of an organization like Shell because it allowed you know, such a junior staff like myself to be in a conversation with very senior leaders. Uh, and you know, I did say to him, you know, we could save both. We, there's no reason why we should, you know, lose on the on the uh, rigs, uh, and there's no reason why we should also lose on the vessels. Why not an armed solution? Mm. Uh, and, you know, the beauty of, of that was the leaders were willing to give it a chance. You know, although he, he was worried there was a big big risk, but you know, the leaders were ready to give it a go, and, and we did, and, and we saved, you know, tons of money from that, but that also gave a platform to even do more. We were then able to expand that beyond even shell. We expand we did an expansion to other oil companies within the UK, and we actually did expand it across the whole North Sea into UK, Holland, Norway, uh, saving quite substantial amount of money. But I think you know leaders uh, that I've, I've seen, um, many of those leaders are, are willing to give talents and opportunities, uh, irrespective of where they came from, irrespective of how low level those opportunities come from. I think once you can. Uh, demonstrate the the value of what you are bringing. Once you can, ha- you know, demonstrate the contribution uh, to the organization's objectives, then leaders, are, I think, uh, are usually very willing to to look at those opportunities, identify the risk if there are any, but uh, to drive for those value uh, across the business.
0: It, it's nice that they were able to listen to a different perspective, and when you when you say mature our leaders were mature, that they were able to listen to a low-level person like you pertain to leadership. That's really interesting to me because maturity seems to be something that is in the best of the best of leaders. What do you mean exactly by that? What do you mean by maturity in listening to someone that is lower level than you?
1: I think, you know, there are various characteristics of a good leader, we will say. You know, a good leader must be Uh, of course able to articulate clearly the the vision of of where they want to take the business to what are the key drivers that a leader wants to achieve in in his organization Uh, but a leader should not necessarily have all uh, that it takes to deliver those uh, that vision a leader will really need to look for talents in the organization uh, and and to be able to unleash the capability of of those talents in, in the organization you know, I always say that a, a good leader should actually be very comfortable to have uh, much uh, you know, individuals who are even more intelligent than him in his team. You know, every team I've tried to lead, I always look for people who are even more intelligent than myself, because as a leader, you should not be the most intelligent in the room. You should be the one that, you should have a good vision. You should have a good clarity on where you're going. You should have the strength to be able to help your team to overcome hurdles, but you should have in your team, those who will be able to have different perspective, diversity, but even those who will have new creativity, new ideas, because of course the world changes. There are new, you know, ideas coming in the new opportunities everywhere and you must be willing for this to uh you know imagine the organization and so i i see mature leaders are those who are willing to listen who understand that they don't have all the answers who really understand where they want to go but are, are open to to get you know the resources and the talents in the organization to be able to you know come up with ideas come up with how to to get to that uh, destination that they really need to achieve uh, and, and be able to listen. You know, a good leader must be able to listen. It's, it's I think, one of the biggest uh, uh, traits for a good leader is, is that ability to listen, to to be able to then utilize the ideas in a positive manner to inspire the organization, inspire his team to, to do sort of, uh, uh, you know, unleashing the talent in the organization.
0: And it seems like that's what the leadership did for you. They instilled that maybe even into you when you took, you know, reins of the organization. And I actually want to talk about that. Here you are, you know, starting from the storeroom, you're working your way up, you're being listened to, Uh, your, your thoughts, your ideas are being applied and making big changes in the organization, helping restructure and reorganize the organization. Then finally, I don't know how you get into that position. Are you promoted? Are you voted in? Are you elected? What that process was like? But I'd like you to share where you were at mentally when you got into that position of power. When I say power, I mean CEO. Did you feel any different? Did you act any different? Was it just a title change? How did you feel and act differently now that you were in this role?
1: I I think, you know, I, of course, I I grew through the ranks uh, and, um, you know, had uh, fulfilled various roles, both in Nigeria, but also in in the UK. Uh, I had, of course, over this period, uh, also learned a lot from from leaders. I, I had seen how... I had worked very closely with, with many leaders and, and learned from them. Uh, and, you know, when I became CEO, um, I think there were some aspects of the role that um, I will say I was uh, probably well prepared for. But I would say there were also, also some other parts that I wasn't well, well prepared for. Uh, I think, you know, when, when you think about aspects like uh, uh, you know really being clear on, on on the deliverables what what we wanted to achieve going into that role i was very clear what uh, i wanted to achieve i i set out three main objectives the, the organization i was uh, ceo for was already a successful organization uh, and, and so i set out three objectives one was to uh, continue uh, to build on that success so that, uh, you know, we, we, we don't lose on, on the value that we the company was already delivering. One was, second was to move the business to the next level, to really go for breakthrough performance, not just uh, what the company was achieving at that time, but, but move it into the next level of performance. And thirdly, it was to be an inspiration for the country, for, for that company to inspire the rest of Nigeria, how to run successful businesses, uh, to be able to add uh, a lot of, uh, you know, social uh, value to the country as well. Uh, and so those three objectives were very clear, measurable. You know, I had very clear targets for that and all of that. Uh, it was also very clear to me that, um, you know, you, you needed to uh, develop an A to B in terms of where the organization itself was at and, and how you wanted to move it to, to you know, where it needs to be in terms of uh, performance management. So really clear metrics of what we're going to deliver, well communicated, and, you um, you know, really, really well articulated for the team. It was very clear to me that I, I needed to really um, uh, inspire the organization uh, and, and, and you know, really develop the people, develop talent. So so that was very clear to me because, you know, those were things I had experienced already in my, in my career. And so, you know, I, I came up with a transformation journey very early on. Part of it was about culture change, you know, culture is always very important in any organization. I, I think it was Peter Drucker who said, the uh, "Culture is strategy for breakfast." So, if you don't have the right culture in an organization, no matter what strategies you come up with, you, you're not likely to make uh, the impact you wanted to make. So, a big culture change program, uh, mostly bottoms up uh, in terms of the staff actually came up with with those uh, culture changes we needed to achieve. Everybody, through engagement, were able to articulate that very clearly, and there were very clear need for. Um, uh, you know, need to reduce costs in the organization because, you know, when I got in there, Mm. uh, although within the first year, we were already making record revenues. We we made $11.5 billion in the first year that I was CEO. But as I looked, you know, into the next five years, I could see that uh, things were going to be more challenging. Uh, I could see that the oil price, you know, we had seen oil price cycle in many uh, cycles over the past 30, 40 years. So I knew the next cycle of the higher price was going to be a lower price. I could see that the climate change challenge was going to lead to, you know, more demand for renewables. Uh, I could see more projects coming in in the LNG area that was also going to drive competition for us, especially in Asia. So, so I knew that our profitability wouldn't be as, as our revenues wouldn't be as high. We needed to tackle costs. So, so cost reduction was was a big of that, I saw the need to change our commercial model. So there were quite a lot of things that we worked on in that transformation, and of course, they were not so easy. Uh, and you know, people were struggling. You know, while in a period of having made about uh, 11.6 billion, I had paid 5.6 billion to shareholders, you know, generous bonus to staff. People were wondering why on earth will you be talking about a, uh, you know, transformation? You're doing very well, um, and you know i had to really spend time communicating working uh, with with others to to really make sure everybody could understand you know where we were heading to it took quite a long time for people to to get there, and some never got there until about 4 or 5 years after when everything i said was going to happen didn't happen was when some really got got to pick it but to, to your question there were a few things that I, I think i wasn't so as well prepared for i, I think one of it i will say was about um um the the what I would call the the social dynamics. Uh, I think you know the external space was was one area I wasn't as well prepared for. I think when you grow up in an organization, especially one that is uh, quite structured, uh, at lower levels, you are not quickly exposed to external, uh, stakeholder in the in the big action that that you have to manage when you become a CEO, and, and so I was trusting into this big external space uh, as CEO that I would say I had not had the uh, grooming uh, at a much lower level uh, for for what I needed to deal with. I needed to deal with government at the highest level. I was having to deal with president, ministers. You know, these were not things that I had prepared forward at, at at lower levels in the organization uh, and i will say that was one thing that i, I had to learn on my feet and, and i had to walk through as as, as i went uh, along I, I think the other thing i, I will say was uh, you know some of the shocks and the uh things that i wasn't expecting uh well some of them were also external i had to deal with a, a government agency that uh blocked blocked the shipment of, of the comment that i was leading uh you know for close to two weeks that i i just didn't expect we could see such a, a an out, such a difficult uh, experience uh, uh, with an agency who wanted to collect uh, uh, you know what we considered an illegal tax from us and, and we rejected this uh, and they then blocked us for for a few weeks so again i will say you know there were those sort of difficult issues in the in the external space that I, I would say you know you don't grow up in an organisation being prepared for for dealing with all, all those sort of difficult things. So so I would say some aspects I think were, were bread and butter. You know, I had grown through the ranks to understand that to understand you know what's the bottom line, what are the, the the value drivers, the the role of of staff, of course the role of your external stakeholders. I was clear about, but the real. Uh, bigger issues in the external space, I think, were areas that I had to grow into.
0: Mm, Interesting. So you were able to, you know, communicate the future into the present within your own organization. You changed the perspective by providing a vision, which changed the behaviors, like the culture you talked about, which resulted in these actions, these lower costs, there's more profitability. Yet when it comes to the external social dynamics, a little bit more difficult. That's an interesting interesting uh use your case right there uh, you, you know
1: what i say kevin um you know i i always look at uh leadership you know maybe from four perspectives um i i say you know there's the intelligence part of, of leadership you know people call it iq sometimes uh I, I think you know when you're at a lower level your iq is probably your biggest tool um, i think as you grow up and you start managing people and you start managing team i think mm-hmm. your Emotional, you know, intelligence starts to play. Your EQ uh, starts to play, uh, and as you manage teams and, and you become, you know, more senior, that that uh, plays more than your IQ, if I will, if I will compare that way. But I think as you then move into more senior role, as you start getting close to, you know, company C suits, I think you start to see the the social intelligence, uh, the social. If I, if I use that word as well, uh, and, and that also starts to grow, even probably as big as your emotional intelligence as well. Uh, your your intelligence IQ is, is still there, but it's not as big as these two issues, your EQ and your, your SQ. And, and I think, you know, you also then have adversarial uh, quotient, as I say, because you face adversaries sometimes, you face challenges, you've hit, you face some... Um, uh, 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 you know hurdles that you have to overcome as well, and so you also have that AQ that I think you know you need to deal with. So, so I always draw a bubble in my head that you know it's like an onion. Your your IQ is at the is at the center of your of your leadership uh, toolkit. Mm. Uh, at some point you grow, and then you have an EQ that surrounds it. Your IQ is still there, but your EQ is, is surrounding it. As you grow more senior into the suit, your SQ starts to also be part of it. And then, of course, you have your your IQ as well. And one thing I I then say also differentiates in my mind, um, Kevin, between you know if you if you're a leader in a, in a developing in a developed country, or if you are leading in a, a developing or in a you know frontier type country, I think in a developed country like in the West, you know your your IQ and your EQ are probably you know, the biggest part of, of what you really need because socially, you know, things are a lot more, I will say, you know, stable and uh, you don't have as many, much adversary. I would not necessarily, like you don't have, but you don't have as much as you have in developing countries. Uh, so you still need all the four, but I think if you're in a developing country, actually, your SQ and your AQ become very important uh, when you start to get into the sort of CEO role. Because you really need to start to deal with a lot more social issues, a lot more adversarial issues than you normally face in in, the Western world. uh, And and how you manage that then becomes even more important.
0: Interesting. So Babs, help me out here. So if emotional intelligence can be increased by, let's say, uh, self-awareness right, if you're very self aware of yourself and aware of others, you have a pretty strong emotional intelligence. Now, when it comes to a social intelligence, what are some qualities uh, for you that stand out? What makes a good strong, social intelligent leader?
1: I think it's about stakeholders, uh, how you enroll stakeholders. Uh, so, so these are external to the organization now. Uh, and how do you talk about you know normally we talk about uh, shareholder value maximization as, as what's key for for organization but I think you know you actually start to talk about stakeholder value maximization so so you look you look beyond your organization you, you start to look at society you start to look at how do you enroll, others in society to make a difference maybe i'll give an example you know if you're in a developing country one of the things you you find is that um, you know things like your supply chain may be uh, a lot uh longer because you are importing a lot of products from outside your country um, but but what that creates of course is that it creates a a, a, a limited uh, local capacity in your country and it creates unemployment as well so you get huge unemployment in your in your immediate surrounding uh, and, and that you know unemployment you can look at it and think well it's not none of my problems unemployment is uh, outside my organization but of course it has all these social issues have impact on, on you as an organization has impact on even how profitable you can be mm-hmm. because you know those social issues can come to impact on you in a negative manner. Uh, and, and so how do you work with other stakeholders in, in the country to bring local capacity, local competence or local uh, capacity into the country? How do you bring manufacturing into the country? How do you bring industrialization into the country? How do you help with community development to create jobs uh, for communities such that you, know, you don't have uh, and, and your one employed uh, around you. So, so the ability, I think, to engage with stakeholders and to be able to create value even outside the organisation with the clarity that by doing that, you're actually able to then maximise your own profitability, I think is one of the key elements of, of, of how you build that social uh, uh, skills that, that, that I was describing.
0: Bob's it is, it is a pleasure to have you on this show, uh, and, and for this reason. Uh, we tend to focus mostly, mostly on social impact-focused organizations that describe exactly what you just described there, the stakeholder approach. We're going to focus on our customers. We're going to add value or environmental or social value to the value chain. Um, How do we increase, let's say in Patagonia, as example, an organic cotton supply chain so that the dyes don't ruin the waste streams and the environment and the society and the culture and the communities that they serve. It's the communities that we have to focus on to maximize, you know, stakeholder value. Now, here's the lens that I'm approaching this from that so you can understand where I'm coming from. The arch nemesis always tends to be the big oil companies. And I'm just throwing this out as the lens that I am coming from for, so you can understand. When, so when we think of publicly traded organizations, specifically you know, gas and oil companies, if you are to say, I'm going to maximize stakeholder value, it makes sense to me. But also if a new technology comes, that's going to reduce your costs. That's going to put tons of people out of jobs that might not be the most ethically sound model that you have, but it's also going to increase your profitability. It's interesting to me, and I say it's a pleasure to have you on because now what you're saying is you're in this position and you've got to deal with external people talking about a conversation. How do you make a sound decision, Babs, That a right decision that may go against the profitability, let's say, as a leader of an organization?
1: I think the, the, the key that I find is uh, the ability to articulate, you know, value. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's been able to articulate it also on a, on a long-term basis. I think sometimes we, we're very carried away with short-term value. And I think that's why you increasingly find organizations now are tying CEOs' uh, uh, remuneration to you know long term performance not not just this year's performance but how the company has done over a period of of time uh, and i think as you start to look at that sort of longer time horizon you start to see indeed why you know it's very important that decisions you take uh, are not just profitable for a year, but uh, decisions that will enable you to continue to grow profit over the years. Uh, It's very easy to destroy value in a short time and and make profit in that year, but but you will see the consequences in in later years. Mm. And I think that goes into the sort of example you you were given, how do you make a decision that looks uh, difficult on the organization now, uh, but is is beneficial uh, for, for, for the stakeholders? Uh, and I think you know that will only. It, it may not show on your bottom line in that year, but it will show over a period of time. So, so let me give let me give an example. You know, I I, I remember once as well. I, I, I was uh, uh, running a a function. I was vice president for a function in logistics infrastructure and um, hsc in nigeria and and one of the areas i was looking at was on helicopters uh, and and we had this helicopter contract that was you know already with a company for many years they'd really become like a monopoly and um you know there was an opportunity to to change that uh, paradigm I, I worked together with my team we were able to find two other companies uh they were able to develop capacity and 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 after competition, you know, we got them to um we got one of them won the the tender basically. But I then saw that there was an opportunity to really develop this, you know, was a local company to develop this company because they were going to be hiring or, or leasing helicopters for seven years. And I thought that's not right. You should be able to buy helicopters. But they couldn't afford it; they just didn't have the money to afford it at that time. So, so I was able to get the organization shell to loan them eighty-five million dollars to buy these new helicopters. Now, if you look at our our books in that year, you will you will see we've been impacted by these eighty-five million dollars that had to leave the the, the company. But over the seven-year period, this company, you know, delivered to us helicopter services at less than twenty, at more than twenty percent lower cost than, than we had previously. And by the time you factor in, you know, the value we got from this company over that period, it was way in excess of that $85 million that we had, uh, uh, you know, loaned them. Okay. So so if you take a one-year view, you, you might get a wrong impression of where value is. As you take a longer-term view, you will then see, you know, the decision that may look like it's not, it's not, um, giving immediate value to the company in day one, will give that value in the long-term. So, so I would say, you know, having a longer-term view is a way to uh, ensure that decisions indeed uh, that may be stakeholder-driven do contribute to maximizing the shareholder value.
0: Interesting, a longer-term perspective helps change change the behaviors of you and the others you're dealing with. Interesting, and that's a really good example too that I like. Now, Babs, you've mentioned merging versus de- developing countries, and how those decisions may be different, how the growth of an organization may be different, how the mentality may be different. What about you know Nigeria? Do you think is different than an or- a shell organization in a in a modern developed organization in terms of how you act and decide as a leader? <laughs>
1: So, so I think the, um, it's a great question, Kevin. And I think the, you know, if you look at Shell in Nigeria and Shell, you know, in UK or in, in, in Holland, I think the beauty of uh, multinationals, of course, is that they already have what I would call global standards. So, so you nearly have what's like a a barest minimum uh, of of how they operate, the standards to which they operate. Uh, the best practices that, that they can they can apply. And, and I think Shell, like most multinationals are able to deploy these best practices across the globe. Uh, and, and that guides, you know, even local uh, companies, how they operate. So, so I will say, you know, from from a lot of practices in in shell in Nigeria or in the UK, they look alike. so you know human resource practices, how you hire people, how you manage performance, you know how you 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 know carry out activities like contracts and procurement. So so you have quite a lot of of those standards that I, I will say are very very common. Uh, having said that, I always say that uh, you almost always. Keep in mind the context, because context, of course, makes a difference. Uh, And uh, when I look at um, uh, those two countries, as I use as an example, Nigeria and the UK, maybe there are three things I will say you should always think about uh, that will be different. I I think we kind of talked on one of them already. One of them being stakeholder versus um, shareholder value. Stakeholder value, shareholder value. Let me give you an example if you are in Shell in the UK, if you talk about community development, it, it doesn't make much meaning because, of course, the, the the governments of the UK or in Western world are already taking care of 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 the communities. They, they build roads, they hmm. have electricity, they have water, you know, basic infrastructures are there, health facilities are there. So, so if you are a CEO in Shell UK, your community development will probably be to you know, equip some schools with computers and, and laptops and, and those sort of, you know, tokenism, if I will use that word. They, they're not you're not really developing communities because they're developed. But if you are a CEO of Shell in Nigeria, where, you know, it's developing, you know, your immediate communities don't have electricity, they don't have water, they don't have roads. Your community development focus needs to be different. It needs to be thinking around how do you work with the government, how do you work with stakeholders to make sure that these communities have these facilities, uh, and 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 that, I think, makes a difference. Uh, and so I would say that's one area that you really need to think differently if, if you are in Shell in Nigeria or you're Shell in the UK. And the other area I would say you need to think differently, of course, uh, if you're in both areas, I would think is, is in the courage that you will have, courage to overcome the hurdles you will meet. Uh, I think if you're in any Western world as a CEO, although you have some hurdles uh by and large the the hurdles that i think you know if you're in the oil and gas industries there may be mighty hurdles like climate change of course that you have to deal with as a societal issue which is quite uh, substantial or of course if you're Poland, then you're dealing with earthquakes or or big issues like like that as well. But I think, you know, in in developing countries like Nigeria, you even have a lot more hurdles than than those. You you might be having to deal with government regulators. You might be having to deal with lack of institutions in, in those countries that you have to, you know, law and order is quite different. Security is a different challenge. So, so you really have, uh, I will say, a different level of courage that you need to have to be able to lead and overcome quite a lot of, of, of these hurdles. Uh, and I think the last thing I would think is, is also different, I will, I will say it's on integrity as well. Uh, and, and integrity, I will say, you know, if you think about uh, these big organizations as well, they of course have standards of, of how they manage integrity issues in, 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 in the in the. You know cooperation, but but I think you drive that in the Western world on a compliance basis. People just comply. I mean, it's society is already that well um, um, structured that people naturally, you know, ethically uh, are able to comply to things and and people. You know don't uh, you don't see in society the level of corruption you might find in in developing countries. I think if you go into developing countries and you try to manage just compliance, you will be dealing with what I call the iceberg effect. People will comply and in the top of the iceberg, you think you're really managing ethical issues, but beneath this, beneath the iceberg will be a lot of things that I, I think are going on. I, I think you need to manage not just compliance but you need to start to work on commitments. How how do you get commitments? Because for people in those organizations, what they see in society uh, is different from what the expectations of the, you know global organizations are unlike in the western world where what they see in society it's exactly what they see in the company so you know there's alignment between what they see outside and what they see inside in developing countries is this is not the case what they see outside is different from what they see inside so compliance culture just doesn't work on integrity and ethics you really need commitment how do you grow that how do you ensure that i think is one of the things that you really need to work on as a leader. So I will think at the very least, those three things I will say you know, are quite different uh, between developing countries and developed countries. And as a leader in those organizations, you really need to be you know, on top of those sort of issues to, to really make a difference.
0: You know, there's a lot to unpack there, but I think the one thing that sticks out to me, Babs, is building trust, building trust within your communities. Uh, and, and I really think that's what it boils down to, whether it's trust uh, in the UK or trust in Nigeria, uh, you're going to run into different things. But let's, let's stay on that commitment to compliance and trust within you know no corruption in the communities uh, that uh, your organization in Nigeria serves. What is one good way or a few good ways or a mentality to have to build trust within those organizations?
1: Yeah that's a great question uh, Kevin and um you know we used to have uh, a a saying we we when i was uh, still in the show we used to say you know trust comes to you on a bicycle uh trust leaves you on a ferrari <laughs> uh, it's it's so difficult to build trust but it's so easy to to lose trust and, you know, trust is earned, really. You have to earn it. You, you cannot demand it. You, you cannot say to people, you, you trust me, trust me. No, nobody trusts, you know. I, I think there's even a natural distrust of people in leadership. I, I think once you're in leadership, people just don't trust you. I, I think, you know, you can nearly start from that basis because they think you know something, they think you're doing something, uh, and, and and people, you know, really don't trust you. So you really need to earn it. And I think, you know, there are many things you need to do as a leader to earn it. I think one of it is that, you know, your words and your actions must be consistent. You know, you have to be authentic. If your words and your actions don't match, people will figure it out very quickly. I think, you know the the organization is able to read a leader very quickly if if, if you say one thing and you do another thing uh, if you say one thing in public and do something in private then they, you know people then don't just trust you so you must be consistent you must be authentic um and I think you know you really need to follow through on on, on your commitments if you say something you have to follow through mm. uh, because I think people want to have that confidence that when you say something you're going to do exactly that. I, I think people will trust you when they also see that you, you're you really on a, on a journey, you're on a mission that is indeed going to make a difference and positively impact them. If, if people think you're on a selfish mission, you're on a mission for yourself, uh, just to, you know, further your own nest, then I think people don't um, uh, really want to trust you. But I think if they see that you're on a, on a mission and, and, and your vision is one that will really bring value for, for a larger pool, uh, then I think people will start to, to look at uh, trusting you. So I think there are several aspects and elements of, of trust, Kevin. And I think, you know, you have to be, work on it as a leader. Uh, you cannot, every mistake you make sets you back, I think, 10 steps backward. Uh, and you're, you're always on the, on the platform, I would say. You're being worked 24-7. Every action of yours is being measured and judged. And so you really just need to 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 be authentic. Say what you want to do. Do exactly what you say. Really make sure your vision is one that really gets best value for for everyone. That you're not selfishly trying to, uh, you know, promote yourself into into just self self uh, actualization alone. I think those are the kind of things I would say.
0: That's interesting, and that's one of the things I've been thinking about a lot recently. Is what you had just said: words and action, and where they align. They must align. But what's scary for me as someone who is maybe more toward the bottom is this, is, you know, are they really those perfect individuals that they say they are? Are are they really flawless as leaders, as as human beings? I mean, when it comes to admitting mistakes, admitting wrongs, did you ever run into a challenge? And how do you perceive uh, vulnerability as a leader? Mm
1: Great question, Kevin. I, I think you know the the first thing, I, indeed, as a leader, you must make clear is that you're a human being as well. You know, sometimes um, I think there's an expectation leaders try to, you know, show a persona that that sometimes could feel larger than life. But I think you know people connect to you more when they feel you're a human. You, you make mistakes as well. You admit your mistakes. Uh, and you know you learn you 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 move forward and and you correct those mistakes, um, and and I think you know it's very very important that that people see you as as that that you are a human being and you make say I remember you know while I was going through this uh, transition that I mentioned to you earlier on in, in my first role as a CEO, uh, one of the changes I wanted to run was an organization change, uh, and you know we have redesigned the organization change. It was supposed to be the the smallest part of the change, because organization change to me was really to enhance our culture change. It wasn't really a big, uh, uh, you know, cost saving or anything, you know, that wasn't what it was. But it became very controversial. And by the time I went to the board, the board actually didn't approve that uh, organization change. It was a bit of a setback for for me and and setback for the whole organization. Uh, And, you know, it, it was indeed very very difficult for for my team that was working uh, with that. Uh, I had to come back to the organization from the board to say, look, uh, one, the board has not approved this uh, change. Uh, Two, business as usual will not continue. So we will have to still do something different. Three, I'm going to work with my team, my management team to decide how we will go about review this and see what we do differently. Uh, And, 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 you know then come back to the team so of course i went back with my leadership team we reviewed it we thought maybe we had approached the change as one massive change maybe we should have taken it as phase changes maybe it was just too big um and i also found that, that there were some other factors that i hadn't considered so you know went back and um, and discussed this with the board and they agreed and and we we then made those changes in phases which which worked well but but one of the things that that also came out from that, uh, Kevin, was when I went back to my team the morning after this change wasn't approved, you know, my, my the team that was working on, on this change with me, uh, as I entered the boardroom with them, and so as I entered the meeting room to, to discuss with them, you know, they were really all their heads were down. They felt really, really sad. It was it was really a bad time for them. They felt all this work, all this effort gone to nothing. And one of them asked me a great question. He said, you know, Babs, are you going to dissolve this team now? Uh, You know, we've we've kind of failed. Are you going to dissolve us? So so I told them a story. I said, look, you know, there was once uh, a a young executive in a company in the U.S. Uh, He was a marketing executive. He, He had convinced the CEO and the management team of a major change of a new product launch that was going to really... Make so much money! It had cost them ten million dollars to to you know do this product launch and and all of that, uh, and but once they went out after going through the launch, the product failed. It was a massive failure, uh, and so the next morning, this young executive, marketing executive, came to the CEO and um, came with his resignation letter. He said, "You know, boss, I'm very sorry. I've let you down. I know you had so much confidence in me. You had so much trust in me." This whole product has failed. Here's my resignation letter, uh, and the CEO looked at him, collected his resignation letter, and tore it, and said, "You know, I've just spent ten million dollars to train you. Why will I allow another company to, you know, take ten million dollars trained chap, right. get back into work, and uh, you know, go use that ten million dollars we've used in training you to, to make a difference?" And that's what I said to the team, mm. and and they left that room feeling really pumped up, and uh, they went on to do great things, and. Uh, I still see many of them today, and they still tell me that story made a, a big difference. So, you know, I think failure is, is 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 one of the key things a leader really always needs to admit. If you fail, you, you admit it. You have to you have to show you are human. You you are blood and flesh like everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to you know be able to. Um, you know, walk through your failures and, and 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 you know make sure that you you learn from it. You you, you use the learnings to to decide what's the best course of action, uh, and you know that, that I think is very important for for trust. If 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 people if your staff feel you don't acknowledge your mistakes, I think they will never trust you.
0: And that's been a consistent theme throughout your career: theming, you know, framing opportunities, framing challenges, framing failure. It's been quite consistent uh, and, and, you know, pays tribute to kind of you as a leader yourself. Now, I want to kind of conclude with this. And I, I think it's just also been a, a constant theme throughout you. And I, and I hope you would agree with this. And it would be this. The leadership, you know, saw you and had this bottom-up approach. That was the legacy thinking they had. That was instilled in you. Now you are here in a position, and you are leaving your own legacy. When you're gone, what would you say a mark of a good leader is?
1: I, I will say, Kevin, that uh, a good leader should have at least three three things. Yeah, I will say, I, I think a good leader uh, must have a vision of of where they need to get to. You know, a leader must be someone who can see uh, above, behind the mountain, he can see through a tunnel. Uh, Because I think, you know, people want to know where they are going to, and and they want to know that where they're going to is going to be better than where they are. And I think a leader must be able to see that and articulate that, uh, communicate that, and and carry people along. Uh, The second thing I think a leader, a recruit leader must have is the ability to inspire uh, the team, the people, the staff, uh, to inspire them, to motivate them, uh, to want to get to on that journey, uh, to motivate them, to, to, to develop them and, and to coach them and, and make sure that they have the tools and techniques to to get to that next, uh, that next level that they want to get to. Uh, and then the third thing I think a leader needs to always do is, is have the ability to support uh, and, and help uh, you know the, the 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 people, the staff to 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 go on that journey because they, they will of course go through uh, challenges as they go on that journey and, and they must be able to help them overcome challenges and, and all of that. So I, I will say three things a leader should always have one clear vision of, of where they're heading to and, and how that vision is going to be better for everyone that's uh, a, a key stakeholder uh and and clarity about uh, about how they communicate that uh developing their team inspiring their team uh making sure they the team really wants to get uh, to to that destination and and really you know want to do it because they, they believe it if it's great vision really at some point the leader it needs to stop being the leader's vision it needs to be the whole organization's vision and then the leader has to help them. So, so it's about leading from the front, leading with the team, and leading behind the team. Really, is is what a leader's role is. Knowing when to step up, step back, uh, and step by the side uh, to help your team get to a much better place than than where you started from.
0: Bob's, I love the answer. It's been you know such a pleasure speaking with you, learning about your mentality, your mindset, where you came from on today's episode. Let's bring this home now. What is your definition of a real leader?
1: A real leader is uh, a leader who can uh, take a, a group of people uh, to a much better place, uh, and with the group of people really feeling that they want to go to that better place, and uh, really putting in their 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 best, uh, and the leader really making people to actually do more than their potential uh, in in reaching that uh, better place.
0: I love it Uh, for Bob's uh, Amatoa. I'm Kevin Ewers asking you to go out there, take people to a better place and always folks keep it real. Thanks, Bob's. Thank you very much. All right. And thank you. Good people for hanging Mm -hmm. on to this episode of the real leaders podcast with Bob's Amatoa. Um, We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did now folks a few of you are asking questions throughout this show and we're gonna get you those answers but before we do folks uh if you are listening to the really podcast for the first time we had a link fly in there on the bio as this episode will be edited produced and published to all of our platform platforms so you want to keep this show going click that link in that subscribe button or just simply share this episode to let others hear bob's story um, okay, first question, Bobs, comes in, and uh, this one, uh, I'm, gonna pro- I'm gonna pronounce the name wrong, I'm gonna say NMA, Nah, and she asks, hi Bobs, how easy or tough was it for you during those first two years of working to make changes in the storeroom which you found this organized? What challenges, if any, did you face from colleagues, subordinates and or bosses knowing that changing the status quo is not always smooth? We'll start with that and then she has another one.
1: All right, uh, Uma. I think um, there were, um, you know, there were different um, challenges, I would say. I think with my bosses, it was uh, quite, A kind of straightforward conversation. I I presented to them the situation to say that this is a very disorganized place. Materials were. were
0: And folks, if you want to hear the rest of Bob's answers, well, you have to be a part of our free community where you can unlock access to live interviews and ask the guests your direct questions after the show. See, Bob's went on for another, I think we did one on another 25 minutes of answering guest questions as. They had a lot of them and he had a lot to unpack in his answers. So if you want to get that firsthand experience from proven real leaders and CEOs, make sure to go and join our live community at realleaders.com slash podcast and click on any upcoming interview to attend the event live. Also folks. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, well, help a leader out and leave us a review. Let us know what you like, how we can improve, and who you want to see on this show. Also, if you are thinking of who you want to see on this show and there's someone that's driving change in your community, please email me directly at b at real-leaders.com. That's be at real-leaders.com. That's it for me. Thanks for being a real leader. And stay tuned for the next episode.